We're going to read Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we, know, we acknowledge that this passage of scripture is, is um, a bit hard for us to, to grasp and to understand what it means for us today. And we pray, Lord, you'd give us wisdom, insight as we, as we contemplate your truth today. And we thank you that, and we pray that it would be all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Things are always changing. We are not the same people we were last week when we were here together. And some things are big changes, some things are small, some change for the better, some change for the worse. As of this week, the Gulf oil spill is still not cleaned up, affecting jobs, energy, food, wildlife. More people have been killed in the midst of war and terrorist activity. Coaching legend John Wooden passed away. Uh, The Lakers and Celtics are at it again. And a Major League Baseball umpire admitted he blew a call that uh, would have resulted in a perfectly pitched game. No hits, no walks, no errors. There's big things, there's small things, and things change. What we're addressing today in God's Word may seem at first glance to have little or no bearing on what's going on out there in the world, but it actually has everything to do with our part in it. Uh, Time is going by so quickly we can barely keep track. It seems like only yesterday Angela and I were bringing Alexandra home from from the hospital, and now she's on the brink of high school graduation. But time waits for no one, and if we're going to navigate life fruitfully and for the glory of God, we we need to have a solid grasp. Not on what's going on out there, but what's going on in our souls. So that we might not waste our lives, and so that we might engage appropriately, and so that we might be ready for our part in the world as God shows us what that is. Now, we just read the Word of God, and we agree. There are a lot of things we agree on together today, and one of them is that we have one objective rule for life and for faith and for practice and it is the word of God which never changes and the word of God is applied by the spirit of God to the people of God for the glory of God and you might say wow you've said the glory of God like you know five times already today and all I would say is I don't think you could say that too much because we exist for the glory of God Now, uh, the other thing I want to mention before we get into the text is that 
we are so used to false claims of change and newness. We, we see the, 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 the statement, new and improved, all the time. And often that means repackaged and reformulated. Uh, new color or shape, uh, a bit more sugar or other nutrient. And uh, we also see the all-new you know, banner and slogan. That's often a rebranded version of the old Old product, same inside, just maybe a different shell. But our passage of Scripture today shows us that Jesus initiates true change and inspires genuine devotion. That Jesus changes hearts and lives. He transforms us. And the thing is, is that when that transformation happens, others can see it. It is noticeable transformation. Now, we just read Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. Now, we have been going through Matthew chapter 8 and 9 for several months now, and we have seen that Jesus has authority over sickness, over nature, over demons. He has authority to forgive. He has authority to choose, to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And today, we're going to see that he has authority over if and when you eat. Because there's a fasting question that comes up. What we see today is that his authority extends over all of life. That uh, there is a controversy that gets brought to Jesus. And it reveals that Jesus came to bring true change and inspire genuine devotion. So that's where we're headed today. And and, and remember in Matthew chapter 9, we're, we're, we're well into Matthew chapter 9 here. And you can see that opposition to Jesus has begun to increase. It's begun to build. There have been challenges towards him from his enemies. There have been insinuations. There have been verbal grenades lobbed at Jesus and uh, by his enemies. Now, at issue were things like forgiveness. That was in the beginning of this chapter. At issue were things like who you could hang out with. And also now it's about how often to eat. It's a fasting question. So let's look at verse 14. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14. First of all, it's the disciples of John this time. It's not the scribes. It's not the Pharisees. It's the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, even though John had officially or in, in, in effect handed over his disciples to Jesus, when he said he must increase, Jesus must increase, I must decrease, some of his disciples did not follow Jesus. Some of them held strongly to John, and that's what we have here, a group of people that weren't following Jesus. They were still disciples of John. So we need to make that that distinction. Now, they ask Jesus a question. They say, why don't your disciples fast? Why don't they go without food? And, And you could, the inference here is, why don't they fast a lot like we do? And there's a focus on we here. Now, interestingly, they align themselves with the Pharisees. They say, why don't they fast like we and the Pharisees? So they're aligned with the Pharisees. Now, if you think about fasting, the Old Testament stipulated one fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, where they were to humble their souls before God and, and in such a way that they would do without their food. And, uh, but Jewish tradition developed into an expectation of fasting two times a week. God did not ask for that to be done, but that was the tradition. And they said, basically, for two days a week, uh, go without food, and you will be 
closer to God. You will be more pious. You will be more devout. You will be more committed. Everything was about being noticed. When they gave, they blew trumpets. So people would know that they were giving. When they prayed, they they prayed loudly and in public so people could see that they were praying. Now, when they fasted, they put on a gloomy face. Some would even make their face look worse than it already did. They put on a gloomy face. So when Matthew, you can see the contrast here, as Matthew organizes the, the stories about Jesus in such a way to make the point he's making, as Matthew and his friends and Jesus were feasting, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, going without food, and they were not happy about it. <laughs> they were not happy about it. And so you could read between the lines, and, and it would go like this. Why are they feasting, read, committing sin, when they should be fasting, read, committing themselves to God? Basically, we deny ourselves food, therefore we are closer to God, and why aren't your followers as pious as we are? If you're so holy, Jesus... In effect, this is what they're saying. If you're so holy, shouldn't your followers at least be as holy as we are? See, their complaint against Jesus was that he was failing to be properly devoted to God and teaching his disciples to do the same. Now, at least they had the the, the guts to come to Jesus face to face. But they they, they didn't accuse him directly, but indirectly, your disciples. Of course, the disciple is like their master. So they were complaining that Jesus was failing to be properly devoted to God and teaching his disciples to do the same. At baseline, they wanted to control the actions of others and the decisions of others, the lives of others. But Jesus would have none of it. In fact, his response... Now, when you look at his response, it seems to be a mix of unrelated teachings. In fact, uh, one of the other Gospels calls uh, the wineskins and the cloth illustrations parables. They seem to be an an unrelated uh, bunch of teachings on fasting, weddings, clothes, and and wineskins, and beverage containers, okay? Um, But they are related, and they point to this. The gospel changes us from the inside out, and man-made ways of relating to God won't work in that new relationship. See, in essence, Jesus is answering them by saying, well, the reason... You want to know the reason? Here's the reason. Because I'm God and I'm in charge. (laughs) And and your understanding of fasting is tweaked. And your understanding of who I am is faulty. Any more questions? Now, fasting in those days was seen as a sign of humility, of of repentance. Um, But their question showed spiritual pride. Notice the focus on we. Calvin said that these fasters were gloom-ridden and turned in on themselves. It's all about them. All about them. Now see in verse 15 that Jesus speaks of himself as coming to his own as a bridegroom coming to his bride. Beautiful picture. It's, it, it, it was not the proper practice to fast at a wedding. Now in those days the wedding ceremony, uh, the wedding celebration would be a week-long occasion. And you wouldn't do without food. There would be plenty of it. It was a feast. It was a party. It was a celebration. 
Jesus is saying it's, that, that's just not appropriate in, in the situation right now. Now, there will be a day when it will be appropriate. But right now, no. And plus, he says, look, what I'm inaugurating is new. And to illustrate, Jesus uses two examples from everyday life. Clothes and wine. Clothing and beverage. In verse 16, no one puts a un- piece of unshrunk cloth and an old garment For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. As soon as I read those words, it takes me back to when I was about 8, 9, 10 years old. I had a pair of light blue corduroy pants. And I had to wear those every day. And as soon as they, if my mom said they needed to go in the wash, I would wait for those pants. And I, I busted holes through the knees. They were patched not once, not twice, probably three times. They were falling apart. I'm sure at some, at, at some point my mom just had them disappear. But I, I had to wear those all the time. But there was no danger with those pants to, uh, to you know, tear. And they were already torn. They were already ruined. They were just, they were, you know, threads. But Jesus is saying, look, if you got a, a, new, a new piece of cloth that hasn't been shrunk yet, you're not going to put it on a, a, a piece of cloth a pair of clothes or whatever a pair of trousers or whatever i guess in those days it'd be like a robe or something but you wouldn't put it on there because it's gonna it's not they don't fit it's going to shrink and when it shrinks it's going to pull out and it's going to it's going to tear so you have a worse situation why make matters worse so so he uses this example of the unshrunk cloth and an old garment he also uses An example in verse 17 where he says, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. Now, the reason why is because they are both going to get ruined. Now, we're like, what what is that? Well, in those days, you would basically take the carcass of an animal and, and gut it and sew up all the spots, even leave the hair on it, and basically wash out the inside of the animal. You sew it up, and at the very top, at the neck would be the opening. You'd cut the head off and there would be the opening. And basically you would fill that. That would be your beverage container. You would put the new wine in and the fermenting process would, would go on in that container. Now as time went on, as you know, leather and, and will get brittle and hard, especially when it's in the same shape all the time. And so what happens is you, you use that and it becomes a hard container. Now if you take that same container and you put new wine in that has not yet fermented and it goes through that process it's going to bust so you're going to lose both you'll lose your container you're going to lose your wine you didn't want that happening now jesus uses these examples to show what he came to do why he came to earth and and that's why this passage of scripture is is so appropriate to where we live and, and again you know you see fasting and you think oh it's about fasting it's about you're going to teach about how you should uh, not eat sometimes you know it's because you're so devoted to god or so so focused upon god that you should fast but this isn't really the point this is the controversy that came to him but he used it to teach why he came and what he came to do so let's let's focus on that let's look in there first of all number one jesus initiates true change and, and like adding unshrunk cloth to an old garment, you can't just tack Jesus onto your old life. It doesn't work that way. Jesus did not come to earth simply to require his men to 
fast twice a week and other things to gain favor with God. It's not why he came. Jesus was instituting an entirely new approach to God, an entirely different approach to God than what they had known. It was incompatible with rigid traditionalism. It was not based on outward conformity, but on inward transformation, transformation of the heart. As Romans 6, 4 tells us, Christ was raised from the dead. And as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we might too walk in newness of life. Those who come to faith in Christ walk in newness of life. You see, Jesus' kingdom and life is the new garment and the new wine. And the only life that can contain that, the true righteousness that God gives, is the new life that God gives. When a person turns from their sin and trusts Jesus as Savior and Lord. We see shades of this in Hebrews chapter 10. This idea that the only life that can contain true righteousness is the new life that Jesus gives. And that new life is is received when a person turns from their sin and trusts Jesus as Savior and Lord. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 20, actually, let's start at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, there's our entry, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, him dying on the cross in our place, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, the one who went to God on our behalf, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he is faithful. He promised and he's faithful. But the whole idea is that the new life that Jesus gives is the container for his true righteousness. It's a spiritual thing. And and doing away with the old and bringing in the new doesn't mean that Jesus was setting aside the law and bringing in grace. Many people have taught that. Many commentators will go there. Jesus made it clear. He did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it to to bring about and reveal its true meaning. Jesus said any opponent to the law is is an enemy of God in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. So the idea is that God's law and God's grace have always coexisted in perfect harmony, perfectly. The old wineskins were not the Old Testament, but traditions of man that interfered with and became more important than God's word. See, life must be reoriented around Jesus. Life is is best reoriented around him. He will not be added to an already full life. You can't simply tack Jesus on Uh, Some people treat Jesus like an accessory rather than the primary focus. Jesus, uh, here's another way to put it, Jesus doesn't do remodels. He does uh, complete rebuilds, teardowns. It's like this. I I know a friend who did, he took his house and he did a complete teardown of the house and then a a brand new rebuild. And uh, he, he, his new house was at the same address so he lived at the same place, still go find them, but they lived in a whole other house, and, and it was an entirely new and different home, and from the inside out, it was not just 
new on the outside. They didn't just do the, the, the front of the house. They did the entire, they gutted the thing. And it was a brand new thing. Now, obviously, every illustration breaks down, but, but the, the, the connection point then would be before you come to faith in Christ um, and are regenerated, all you can do is go one way. Now, you might be able to make yourself look like you're going towards God, but you can only sin, basically. Okay? You can't do true good outside of Christ. Now, once you get saved, you don't have to sin anymore. Now, that doesn't mean you will never will sin anymore. And we are all uh, exhibit A on that one, right? Uh, <laughs> what did you expect, right? It's like, this is, this is life. Uh, don't expect perfection until heaven, okay? Uh, but the idea here is that once you get saved, you don't have to sin anymore. That's not your, 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 your only bent in life. It's not the full pattern of your life. Now, you will look the same, same person, same personality, and, and, but you will not have the same hunger for sin and the same bent to rebel against God. Now, instead of being an enemy of God, you are a friend of God. Been brought near by the blood of Christ and able to enter uh, into his presence with boldness because of who he is. So that's the idea. And that, so your life is redirected completely and, and you still sin but no longer have to because the power and the penalty of sin has been broken in your life. Now you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but I, I do sin. Well, yes, uh, you do. You can make, we can make, and we do, the conscious, the conscious moment-by-moment decision to sin and experience its consequences or to walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit and, and experience new life that God gave us. The, the joy of, of obeying God. We see glimpses of that and, and it's, we just say praise God. So, you know, things get really messed up when we try to make Jesus an add-on rather than see him as the primary focus, the main thing of our life. Now, you take Jesus' example of torn clothes and burst wineskins and, and there's effects to that. Ripped garment, spilled wine, uh, and we see the, that, the effects in lives, in families, in churches, and in communities all the time. The effects of sin and the effects of, of not understanding God's program and therefore um, activity without inward change uh, is empty. It leads to futility. When any form of praying or or not eating or serving even or any religious thing we do coming to church can become this for you reading your bible can become like this but if it becomes the focus of our attention if the activity itself becomes the primary focus then it's a barrier to our relationship with god it's a roadblock in the way of unbelievers becoming christians because we're going to show them a false view just do these things, and it's a barrier to our relationship with God, our progress in Christ, when we make the activity the substance versus uh, a means. Okay? We, t- we make it the end versus a means. The idea is this, is that Jesus initiates true change, and anyone who's ever been saved has been saved, justified, made right with God, saved uh, by grace alone, it, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
for God's glory alone. That's the way it works. That's what Jesus instituted. It's initiated and sustained by God. So Jesus wants them to be very clear about this. And that's why he gives these, these, these illustrations. Now, I want to give you a side note on something that I think is significant to see in this passage. And it's that we can learn how to deal with controversy from Jesus. And uh, what to do when it finds you. When Jesus was confronted by scribes regarding forgiveness and Pharisees regarding fellowship and now the disciples of John regarding fasting, Jesus didn't back down. Jesus didn't pretend like it wasn't going on. He engaged his opponents. And he did it kindly and gently and firmly. So let me give you three things that I learned from Jesus in this regard. One is don't shy away from controversy when it comes your way. We tend to avoid it at all costs because it's painful. But God may want us to engage to fulfill his good purposes. The second thing is don't instigate it. Don't be argumentative, okay? Don't instigate it, but see and use controversy as an opportunity to, to refute error and lift up key gospel truths. This is what Jesus did. He was refuting error, their, their views of Fasting were faulty. Their, their views of who he was and what he was doing was, was faulty. But then he lifted up gospel truth. He lifted up the fact that he was making all things new. Now, he did it in a parable form, which I think shows that he was dealing with people that might not get it. And that's how it is sometimes. People get it, people don't get it, right? But use controversy as an opportunity to refute error and lift up key gospel truths. Jesus did this unargumentatively corrected wrong views and showed gospel truth the third thing is don't lash out in anger you do not see jesus spewing on these people and then having to go back and say oh i'm sorry i got mad at you because of what you did you know it didn't happen that's what happens in our relationships right someone does something to you your response is worse than their initial so now you're in the in the wrong and you got to deal with that right and this is tough now what jesus did he didn't lash out in anger but he calmly confronted those who contradicted and and uh, gave them words of wisdom. Sometimes it's more loving to engage thoughtfully, prayerfully, lovingly, and firmly. So those are some things I think we can learn from Jesus as a side point here about dealing with conflict and controversy when it, find, when it finds us. Um, so, but first, Jesus initiates to, true change. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is Jesus inspires genuine devotion. Jesus inspires genuine devotion. Now, true change is the new thing that Jesus brings about, and it results in genuine devotion to God. Genuine commitment to God. Uh, The genuine righteousness of a person who is forgiven and cleansed by Jesus, though, can't be supplemented by external religious works, like, you know, like kids, you're in school, and you're like, hey, can I get extra credit for this? This is not... The things we do as a result of our devotion to God are not extra credit to somehow push us closer to heaven or get us more acceptable to God. But we do tie that in. We think, I read my Bible every week. God is more pleased with me. He likes me more. Well, I fasted this last week. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. Those kind of things. We don't want to go there. The idea here is that marks of true devotion will be seen, but you do what you do not to gain standing with God, but out of love and devotion 
for God and, and to please him, to, to, to present to him an offering, but not to gain position. It's like a spouse at the bedside of, a, of, of, of their beloved who is dying. And, and you don't think, wow, that, that spouse is really earning some points with their spouse. You never think that. Now, you do think that often if you go, hey, I cleaned out the garage. You asked me to do it, and I did it. You know, and I painted the house or whatever. You think, wow, I'm making points. But when you, when you see a, a spouse at the bedside of their beloved, and they're pouring out their life for them, you never think, wow, uh, they're going to have a closer relationship now or whatever. You, you think, what, what love? Oh, what devotion? What commitment? That, that's, all, that's all you think. It's the same as a parent caring for their child and, and you just think that's, that's just, it shows the depth of love that exists. Or a friend standing by a friend through thick and thin. Not for them to do favors for you later because you're a better friend. It's because you love them and you're devoted to them. It's, it's motive. God's faithfulness inspires and enables ours, is the idea. And, and the question I'll, I'll pose and, and then answer, attempt to answer, is what does true devotion look like? What does it look like if we're truly devoted to God? All of us are probably saying, well, I want to be that. I want to do that. I want to do it for the right reasons. I, I don't want to go uh, do the things I do in the Christian life so that I can, you know, be forgiven more because that already took place at the cross. And uh, I don't want to do the things that I do to you know, get a higher place in heaven or whatever, more rewards or however we want to put it. Uh, but what does genuine devotion to God look like? Well, when we are truly changed and genuinely devoted to God, first and foremost, we will love the Lord. We will love the Lord. In Matthew 22, it says this, you shall love the Lord your God. It's quoting from the Old Testament. You will love the, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's, it's love motivated. When we love the Lord, we follow the Lord. We obey. Following the Lord. If you say, I'm following Jesus, what you say is, I'm obedient to Jesus. The direction of my life is towards Doing what I know pleases him in his strength and for his glory. Now, when we follow the Lord, it's kind of like Psalm 23 when we, when we state, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me, that means I'm following him. And John chapter 10, verse 27, that's what Jesus said. He said, my sheep hear my voice and, they, and I know them and they follow me. It's the idea of obedience. It's the idea of Going in the same direction, right? Now, while others might be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of teaching and easily deceived, we, though, would be rock solid. Why? Because as we love the Lord, we follow him, we obey him, and his word supersedes all others. His word is eminently important to us over all other words. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us that when the word of God abides in us, it helps us overcome the evil one. When the word of God is deeply abiding in us, it flavors our words. It, 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 if, if, the, if we're thinking about the word of God, then it's going gonna, it's gonna, to um, mark everything else. It's going to color everything else. And, and his, when his word supersedes all others, then we become champions of a biblical worldview. 
we champion a biblical view of life, that the grid through which all we see all of life is through the Word of God. That's what God expects of believers. So, though times may change, His Word never does. And so what we do is we strap ourselves to the mast of truth and we ride out every storm. And when we sin and we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, indwells every genuine believer, we don't find ways to cover over that sin, but we find ways to expose it to the light and confess it, admit it, and forsake it and turn to God. Actively seek and welcome change. John Wooden died Friday at age 99. And when I was, when I was nine years old, uh, I got to go to his basketball camp. Actually, two summers in a row, when I was nine and ten. And uh, my scrapbook, I, have a, my, I brought my scrapbook with me today. If anybody wants to see it later, uh, it might explain some of my weirdness about being a crazy US, UCL. Ooh, I, almost, I can't believe I almost said that. <laughs> can't believe I almost said that. Don't tell anyone that happened. Um, UCLA fan, fanatic, is because, uh, you know, I've got two pictures with him. I've, I wrote him a letter when I was 10 years old, and he wrote me back. I got that letter in there, and, and some other things like that. But, but the thing is, is that John Wooden, Coach Wooden, said this. He said, failure is not fatal, but failure to change might be. See, people get ideas stuck in their heads that they are convinced are correct, such as the earth is flat, or if God in, you know, wanted people to fly, he would have given them wings. That was said when the Wright brothers uh, created their plane. If, if God intended people to fly, he would have given them wings. Um, <laughs> like Pharisees, we can become short-sighted, and we can stand right next to the truth and not see it. But it's great when we're able to to see the truth and, and admit the truth. Uh, this week, uh, you know, it's a mundane to some and, and very important to others. I am not the biggest baseball fan in the world. I, I'm more uh, a fan of football and basketball, but uh, MLB umpire Jim Joyce, you know, he was uh, the GOAT for a while this week, right? And, um, you know, the next day there were tears and a willingness to apologize and to... Um, to admit he blew the call that uh, cost Armando Galarraga the perfect game he pitched. And uh, he apologized, and that humility and that willingness to speak the truth earned him greater respect from players who already saw him as among the league's best in the, in the umpire category. Um, but God opens our eyes to the truth, and we have a decision to make when, we, when we're exposed to it. So what are we going to do? Especially when it's the truth about us. What are we going to do? And uh, if his word supersedes all others in our life, then we will go in line with that. Um, the other thing about it, if we, when we love the Lord, then when we love him, we are on his timetable, not ours. We seek his agenda, and, and he is not slow. He is not late. He is not uh, too busy. His plan is unfolding right on time, perfectly timed for good. All is working as he has purposed. And uh, he is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we can be confident and rest in him. Uh, now, when we're genuinely devoted to God, we will love God. We'll love the Father. We'll love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
But we will not only love the Lord, we will love the Lord's people. That's the second thing. We will love the Lord's people. We have a heart for the church. We will love the body of Christ. And since we love our family in Christ, here's things we will reject. Jealousy, among other things, by the way. You know, not the only things, but jealousy, animosity, unkind thoughts, and bitter words. If we love our family in Christ, we will reject jealousy, animosity, unkind thoughts, and bitter words. And just like in our human families, when we engage in those things, we will apologize and make things right. Romans 13, verse 10 says that love does no wrong to a neighbor. 1 Peter 4, 8 says love covers a multitude of sins. People you like, you give them a, more the benefit of the doubt. We are more willing to overlook things when we love, when we love our brothers and sisters. You don't excuse sin, but you don't pile on, and you don't just pick. Um, the other thing we do is we reject legalism and license. Legalism and license. I brought this up before. But legalism says people have to do exactly as I think they should do to be right with God. License, now by the way, that was John's disciples on fasting. Why don't your disciples fast twice a week? Uh, License says I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with no thought for the good of others. But true believers know that what was started by the Spirit cannot be completed in the flesh, either in license or legalism, on either extreme. Um, so the last thing I'll mention on, on this idea is that if, when we're genuinely devoted to God, if we're going to love him, we're going to love his people, but we're also going to love all people. We're going to love all people. Um, we will have compassion for and want to reach out to unbelievers. We don't expect them to behave like believers, but we will accept them as they are. We will work for their good and God's glory. For those who are counting how many times I say God's glory... Uh, but you will do what you're called to do in Christ. You'll live and share the gospel and allow God to do the changing without necessarily agreeing with their lifestyle or sin. You'll have a heart for mission because you're always on assignment for God, uh, which has been instituted by him, started by him, initiated, enabled, and sustained by him, empowered by him. God does this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, He manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place what God is doing as we go where we go John Wooden also said uh, you can't live a perfect day until you do something for someone who will never be able to pay you back Al Mohler says this serve preach teach and tell the world about Jesus until they put you in a box or until Jesus comes and, it, and all will be well. Start what you cannot finish and trust that Christ will finish what he has started. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you show us and, and reveal to us that Jesus has authority over man-made traditions and false spirituality and spiritual pride. All things that hinder growth in the Lord and our interactions with others and, and our witness to the world. We, we acknowledge, Lord, and accept that Jesus only initiates true change and inspires genuine devotion. And Lord, while we look for easy answers to our problems, we know that to become a better person or spouse or son or daughter or student or employee or friend or neighbor or missionary or whatever, we must become more radical disciples of Jesus.
but we must become like Jesus and things will change in our life. So Lord, give us grace to pursue neglected things of discipleship like not conforming to the world and being mature and, and, and living a simple life and being balanced and, and depending upon you. And Lord, we know that true change and genuine devotion will result. And we thank you in Jesus' name.